0: I went to McDonald's once, which is not unusual for me. I went to McDonald's and um, it is the traveler's oasis, it is the restaurant of all restaurants. It actually is a restaurant in case you're wondering, this thing is classified as such. But I went to McDonald's once and normally McDonald's you have expectations, don't you? We all have expectations at McDonald's. I was talking with someone from the congregation recently we were getting coffee somewhere and they said we could get a McDonald's coffee if the shop we were going to wasn't open. I said, well... The, the wonderful thing about McDonald's is you can go anywhere in the world, try it. You can go anywhere in the world, anywhere in Australia and all the food is exactly the same except the coffee. Right? The coffee is, it's okay, but it's just different in different places depending on the barista. But that's what we've come to love about McDonald's. It's quality, and it's fast. So one day I walk into McDonald's, and this sounds like a joke, but this is a true story, this actually happened. I walked into a McDonald's, I was travelling, and what became clear within seconds of walking into that restaurant was that there was a problem. You could tell the food was taking longer than usual, you could tell the expectations were not being met, after all, we're used to expecting it. It's, it's called a fast food restaurant. You know, if you want to go to a slow food restaurant, you don't go to McDonald's. The food is supposed to come to us faster rather than slower. But as the time ticked, I could tell that people became more ticked off. As the time ticked, people became ticked off. And the waiting turned to whining and people started turning on the teenagers who were struggling to do their best with a demanding world. You said, the teenagers were doing their job. It's the grown-ups were having none of it. The adults in the room were turning into not adults. It was an ugly scene. Now I'm not a hero, and I'm not the hero of this story, as you'll see in a minute. But I didn't have the courage in me to feel like to say anything. There's a public scene going on before us. So all I did was, as my meal came, after everyone else's, by the way, as my meal came, I said, I just I whispered to the teenager, I think you're doing a great job. Someone overheard me say that. And they got their chips and threw them on the bench and said, I think you're doing a terrible job and it's disgusting. I didn't have the courage in me to say, that's not okay. That's not okay. I reckon you may have been there in a scene like this, be it McDonald's or whatever it is. It's a snippet of our world, isn't it? Expectations not being met, demands. And people just turning on one another, biting and devouring one another. That's a true story, but here's what's even truer, and here's why I'm not the hero. I have had many a time going into McDonald's, my favorite restaurant, and feeling like it's a bit slow today. And I feel the frustration rise in myself. I feel the unmet expectations in myself. And so I want to say, I'm not a hero. I'm not a perfect person. Which means, I guess, you felt that too, and neither are you. Friends, we live in a demanding world, we swim in it. We breathe its air. We accept its expectations. From the beginning of this book, this book of Genesis, and if you're new to it, if you're with us online or you're watching here for the first time, you're looking on and perhaps your neighbour's got a Bible in front of you, you've only got to flick to the start of this book, to the start of... The world, the start of humanity, and since the start, since the day that we all fell, humanity has been stuck like a device is stuck in demand mode. It's like we we can't fix it, we can't turn the switch. We've been stuck in demand mode. Even though, ironically enough, we've been given so much. This is the way the world functions. And the fruit of this lifestyle to lifestyle that lives for me, and what it sees is our hearts shrivel in selfishness, and it sends relationships into bitterness. See, once our first parents, our ancient grandparents, Adam and Eve, once they grasped that tree, they grasped for the glory of that tree, they they, they reached out, they disobeyed God and demanded to take and eat from that tree. And that moment makes for every moment since. Do you realize in the Garden of Eden at the fall that was a fast food moment? I want this and I want it now fast, fast food. Yes, fast food sent the world into sin. Because our demand, our selfishness is where sin comes from. And we're all infected with this. You don't understand the world until you first understand how good the world was. To then understand how we, my sin, me, makes the world so wrong. Not everyone else's, not everyone else is the problem, but me, we, you, I are the problem. We're all infected with this and and, and the problem of sin is the biggest problem in the room. It dehumanizes us. It drags us to our deaths, which is a symptom of the real spiritual problem that is spiritual death. Now, why do we need to remember that from the start as we look at this episode in Genesis 14? Because this episode comes in that context, friends. This episode comes in that context. This is why people are like this. It's why we see what happens here in Genesis 14. And it's why we need to understand we need deliverance. Last week we saw, as you saw, if you look in your Bibles there, Genesis 14, last week we saw, Abram is the only one who does what needs to get done. Four kings, a conglomeration from the fertile crescent of the east and the north, come and invade Canaan. And Abram, who's not from Canaan, he's a foreigner travelling through this land, he's the only one that gets up and chases them out of the place. He's the one that gets it done. They even form a coalition of five kings and they lose the king of Sodom is one of them that loses, but it's Abram and his 318 men who chased them out of Canaan. And what do we see now in Genesis 14, verse 17? Abram is returning after that defeat. He's coming back, dust smeared, blood stained, battle hardened. He's coming back with his men. He's tired. He's weary. He's rescued. But as we look with human eyes on the scene and we see verse 17 after his return from the defeat of aroma, we know this. Was it Abraham? Was it Abram who defeated those kings? Now, we know he wasn't the deliverer. God is. And the same Holy Spirit who we saw in the kids talk convicts us of our sin is the same Holy Spirit that shows us here who we really need. Who Abram's deliverer really is. It's God Most High. And we know this and we see this when we meet the man Melchizedek. As Abram returns, two kings go out to meet Abram in the Valley of Sheva. Two kings go out. But the first one is a mysterious one. He's a man of mystery. Who is this mysterious Melchizedek? As the king of Sodom goes out, there's Melchizedek next to him. And we see that they meet near Salem, in the Valley of Sheba. Now, Salem, by the way, we know from Psalm 76, Salem, King Melchizedek from Salem, is from what we understand as Jerusalem. So here is Jerusalem, ancient city, the oldest city in the world, by the way, is Jericho, but Jerusalem, an ancient city. Here is Salem, here is the King of Salem, comes out of Salem, his name is Melchizedek, and he greets Abram with gratefulness. Seen verse 18, Melchizedek king of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. Now we read those two cross-reference readings on purpose because Psalm 110 and Hebrews 7 are where we really see Melchizedek brought to understanding. But the point of those passages is we don't understand everything about him. From our cross-reference readings, we see that Melchizedek is an extraordinary person because he's legendary and yet he's real. He's king of Salem, but also something else is extraordinary about him, he's a king who is a priest. See, that's not normal. That's not normal. Even kingdoms in the ancient Near East, even kingdoms then had a separation of religion and state. Even kingdoms, it was normal to have a separation of religion and state that the king was not normally a priest. There were priests. Think of Egypt. You think of even Rome. Even when Caesar was declared a god, they had priests of the gods. It's not normal for there to be a king who's a priest, but here is this very not normal person. He's very not normal. He's legendary. And what also is extraordinary about this king, king of Salem... He comes from a city-state that is pagan. And he comes out of nowhere. Because this this pagan city-state, Salem, in Canaan, so extraordinarily, he comes out, and what does he say, Abram? You notice you can see it in your Bibles. You can see in verse 18, he says, he comes out and, and praises God Most High. This is amazing. Here is this king in a pagan place, that has not had the call of Abram, but comes out and praises the same God that Abram knows. I mean, Abram, he was chosen by God, elected from the rest of his pagan worshipping family who don't live for God. And he left them back in Ur of the Chaldeans, moves up the fertile crescent over down in the Canaan and he's from way, way away. God has picked him and yet now there's a king that comes out of Salem he says, I know that God too. How can this be? Do you remember from our series in Genesis last year? Do you remember words about Canaan? What did Noah say about Canaan? Do you remember the story, and situation? After the flood, there's Noah. Now, they've been in that ark for a long time. And as he comes out of that ark, Noah plants a vineyard and does what he shouldn't do, he gets drunk. And as he lies in his wasted mess, along comes Ham, his son. And Ham does what we do ever since. What does Ham do? Does Ham help his dad? Does Ham look at his dad's mess and embarrassment and cover him and help him? No, the other sons do that. What does Ham do? He gossips. Ham is just a gossip and a slanderer. He goes and tells other people. Rather than helping out his father, he just gossips. He just talks about him. And what does Noah do in response? Do you remember? Genesis 9. He pronounces a curse, but not on Ham. No, on his son, Canaan. Why? Scholars discuss this until we're all scholared out. We don't know by speculation, but what we do know is in the text. It was Ham who dishonored his dad. Ham is the one that broke that relationship unrepentingly, destroys it. It's not normal for people to destroy other people's lives. That is not a normal thing to do. There's a meme going around about that. It is not normal for people to destroy other people's lives. That is not a normal thing to do. So what does Noah say? You want to be in that sort of relationship with your parent? Your son is cursed. Canaan is cursed. Noah pronounces a curse on Canaan. So what we see here is, here is Abram in pagan Canaan. Having defeated the attackers defending his pagan neighbours to now astonishingly be greeted with such grace by this king in a pagan land who comes out of nowhere, who worships the true and living God. Where does Melchizedek come from? Who is this man? Well, he's a man of mystery. The cross-reference readings show in Psalm 110, there is this song about the Messiah to come, the Christ the New Testament speaks of. So the Old Testament word for this saviour is messiah the new testament word is christ psalm 110 is about this person and we read in psalm 110 verse 4 the lord has sworn and will not change his mind you of this messiah the christ you the christ are a priest after the order of Melchizedek, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek." the messiah promised throughout the old testament is the christ who comes in the new testament get this jesus the christ is a priest in the line of Melchizedek. Why is Melchizedek picked? Well, the writer of the Hebrews shows us. Because Melchizedek, unlike the other priests that come from the line of Aaron, from the line of Levi, Melchizedek doesn't have that genealogy. We read this in Hebrews 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the God most high, met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And we read in verse 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy. Now, There are people that, scholars that say, because it says in Hebrews 7 verse 3, he's without father or mother of genealogy, maybe Melchizedek is a Christophany. Have you heard of a Christophany? It's like a theophany. What scholars are asserting is this, if Melchizedek doesn't have father or mother of genealogy, maybe this is a pre-incarnate Christ. Maybe this is Jesus before he's in flesh, come down kind of in a spiritual form as a king that appears as such. Maybe it's the pre-incarnate Christ. Well, again, you don't have to be a scholar to see that's not what the Bible says in Hebrews 7, verse 3. Have a look if you want to, but let me just read it again. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, Does that mean pre-incarnate Christ? No, the writer is saying, unlike Aaron and his genealogy, unlike all those who have a genealogy, Jesus has a genealogy back to the tribe of Judah. Melchizedek does not. The point the writer of the Hebrews is saying is, he is a pagan city king who comes out of nowhere, but this one has no genealogy. He's not like Abram. This one yet worships God most high. This one with legendary status points to the one who has legendary status of all time, Jesus. Jesus who is a priest forever. Also, there can't be a Christophany because it says in Hebrews 7 that he resembles the Son of God. The Bible is very clear. This is why it's very important when we do things like catechisms, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, that he's co-eternal with the Father and the Son. The Bible is very clear when it comes to the Trinity. Getting the Trinity wrong is is an issue of, are we orthodox? Like, do we know the true and living God? And what we see here is the writer of Hebrews is saying, he is not the Son of God, he just looks like the Son of God. Which, in other words, says he is not co-eternal with the Father and the Son. It's important to get, it's really important to get, It's important to understand the trying God rightly. Whole sectarian groups have started because they haven't understood the trying God. I give you the Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, uh, Unitarians, not Christian churches. Now, this Melchizedek is a real person. Yes, he's really legendary, but he really resembles the one... Who is king forever, Jesus. So, what's going on in Genesis 14? What do we see about Melchizedek? Why is this pointed out to us? Here we see and hear these things. Firstly, we see this. We see, notice, Melchizedek comes to Abram, gratefully celebrating the victorious Abram. And what does he come with? Bread and wine. He comes with gifts. Abram didn't order that at the local McDonald's as he's traveling down south. Melchizedek brings it out. We also hear something. We hear Melchizedek's words. Friends, words matter. Words carry meaning. Words say something. And Melchizedek's words carry lots of meaning. Blessed be Abram. By God Most High, Possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He repeats what we need to see and hear. It is God who delivers people. It is God who provides for people. It is God who is Abram's God. In this song, we see something of Melchizedek's belief himself. This shapes his whole relationship with Abram because Melchizedek gets this, which we'll see in a moment the king of Sodom doesn't get. Melchizedek gets this and we need to get this. Do you see this? Do you recognize that everything we have is from God? Everything. Friends, we've, I've preached for 10 years at this church and I've been through a whole series like the book of Job. I've been through 1 Peter. We've been through nearly the whole New Testament at Reforming Church. So much so we need to start it again, but we're going to do some more Old Testament books because we've done a lot of Old Testament books too. It's in my Bible here, got the ticks to show you which books we've done. And in lots of books, what do we also see, even God allows, God gives us, is suffering. And I know that's hard to understand. But we're going to see at the end of Genesis something really important, a word that helps you understand this is providence. God, who is so sovereign by his providence, has plans and purposes, even in suffering, that we can't get now. You say, well, that can't be true. How can that be true? I give you the cross. Because if God can use the cross of suffering for saving the world, is it possible he uses your suffering for good? Could God be that powerful, that big? Amen and amen, yes. Abram comes in this moment. He's been a humbled man. Remember Genesis 12, second half? What did he do in Egypt? Not the right thing. He got very humbled there as a man. Betrayed his wife a little bit, if not a lot. Wasn't a good family man. But he gets forgiveness, he gets grace, and he gets restored, and he gets to grow, and he gets to praise the God Most High. He gets to rely on him because Abram knows and Melchizedek knows it's God who delivers us in a demanding world. And look at Abram's response to Melchizedek. We see it in verse 14. What does he do? Abram gives him a tenth of everything, a tithe. He gets it. Abram gives his tithe as an act of worship. It's not primarily for Melchizedek, is it? Well, because it's just a priest-king, the tithe is primarily, this is how I worship God. How do I acknowledge that God gives me everything? I give a tenth. Is that too hard? It's a tenth. God gives me everything. God gave you the breath you just took in and just exhaled. That is from God's sovereign, providential hand. He gives us everything. And so Abram just worships in the way he can and knows how in this moment. He has just been given everything in plunder, and so he gives a tenth to Melchizedek. But there's someone else looking. There's someone else watching. There's someone else looking on, and he is in contrast to Melchizedek. It's the king of Sodom. Now, who is this? He's not named in this particular episode, this scene. It could be Barah, because he's named king of Sodom. Barah is named early on in Genesis 14. It's possible, though, that that king of Sodom fell into the bitumen pits and was no more, and there's a new king in town, and this king, whoever it is, maybe it's Barah, maybe it's not, but this king, you can see the contrast yourself, can't you, in verse 21? And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. The culture that we live in often absorbs the way of the world, doesn't it? That means that we're always on such a slippery slide that we can start ourselves, we're tempted to talk and act like this ourselves. Even people call themselves Christians, we can we can become legalists. There's all sorts of talk about not being like the world, and yet we just hypocritically speak just like the world, We we just act just like this easily, often in graceless ways. This is how the king of Sodom speaks. Now, scholars will say, you can see in the original language, by the terse nature of the use of the words, it's very terse. It's very kind of demanding. It's very just give me stuff. But friends, you do not have to know a jot or tittle of Hebrew. You don't have to know any original language to understand the tone here. You can see this, can't you? Look at verse 21. How can you tell? Some scholars will say, by the way, as you look at verse 21, oh, you just need to know the cultural ancient Near East norms. and And I've watched some YouTube videos, and so I've seen some cultural norms. This is a cultural norm. Really? Because you got it from YouTube? Friends, you can get it from the Bible. Read the Bible. Look at verse 21. You just need to do one thing, read the Bible. Look at the narrative. One verse, one sentence. Compare the king of Sodom's sentence with what Melchizedek has said on the page of your Bible. You can tell what's going on here. Melchizedek comes with bread and wine, feasting, sharing and singing. How does the king of Sodom come? Does he got any bread and wine? Has he got any feasting, sharing, even a song? Has he even got some words of love and thanks? You know the answer. He just comes and says in so few words, give me. Give it to me. The king of Sodom is clever though, isn't he? You see, he's clever enough, hypocritical enough though, to make it look like he's being a good guy. At least he's trying. Give me the persons, be, you take the goods for yourself. Oh, that's very generous of you, King of Sodom. You have all the stuff, I'll take the people. I mean, you nearly died for their sake, you nearly died for them, you, you went up for them and you've, you've cared for them, you've brought them in the train, host of captives in their train, you've provided for them, but uh, I'll have them now, thanks. He treats the people like it's property. The king of Sodom is even changing the narrative to make himself look generous. It looks generous, but what the king of Sodom is doing is being very manipulative. He wants to be able to say later, look at what I paid for. Look at what I gave you. It looks generous, but just like anyone who makes deals and treats relationships like they're transactions, counting what we give each other rather than loving our neighbor, Abram can really see what's going on here. Can you see in verse 22? But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Melchizedek brought a banquet. The king of Sodom brings nothing. He doesn't even bring thankfulness. There are no thankful words. And that says everything about his heart. So Abram knows what we need to know, what we need to believe. It's God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth, who owns your possessions who actually is sovereign over when people are born, when they die, where they'll live and have their being. It's him that has delivered us. It's him I owe all to. It's him I'll worship. It's him I'll give to. Reforming Church, we need to see this. See, God is not just showing us a selfish king and a generous king. God is showing us the one who is the most generous king of the universe, him himself. He is showing us himself and his word that we would actually lift our eyes from where we would try and find things for satisfaction and go, I find my satisfaction in you, Psalm 34, where there are pleasures at your right hand forevermore. That we would live for God and not for the things of this life. That we'd actually worship him with joy and actually find our joy in him. For if you see this, if you see Jesus is our deliverance in a demanding world, it will change your life. It will actually change your heart. See, we live in a demanding world. I didn't need to tell you that, did I? I get it. For those of you who have workplaces you go to, you live in a demanding world. For those of you that have wider families with greater problems, we live in a demanding world. For those of you in your own friendships, we live in a demanding world. The world we live in just wants to take, 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 and it ends up dehumanizing us. We become like beasts, grabbing it like wild dogs at the bit of meat in the middle, like crows on a lamb. And the demand rises in our hearts, and it distorts us, And it distorts how we treat God. How we relate to him who made us. And this demand is a symptom of a spiritual heart disease of a world that doesn't acknowledge God, let alone worship him. So why would we track in that direction? The king of Sodom treated Abram as some sort of matter of business. But the king of Salem, Melchizedek, saw what it really was, a matter of worship And he looked beyond the gifts to praise the giver. Abram shows the king of Sodom and the world around us, what Melchizedek sees and says is true, Abram says this himself, he relies on God most high. That's what he says to the king of Sodom. I actually rely on God here. And that might mean he might lose in that moment, mightn't have great friendships with the king of Sodom. But do you really need to be such strong friends with someone who doesn't understand the God Most High? Instead you could pray for them and love them from a distance but this is a person who's going to demand and demand and demand. Instead they need God Most High. They don't need you, they need the one who is. The deliverer of them. Because this is all showing us what it means to not be dependent on God but to distrust Him. See, Not trusting in God, we think ourselves, our society is geared towards this. We think, I don't need to trust God, I can I can do my life myself. I do me, you do you, I don't need God. And we think that'll make us stronger, but it actually makes us weaker. Not trusting in God actually embitters us in the bad times and shrivels our hearts so that we love God less. Not trusting in God shortens our faith by sight. We don't see as far by faith shortens our faith by sight. And then we become self-centered and kings and queens of our own world, much like the king of Sodom. But look at Abram. Look at Melchizedek. Relying upon God, our deliverer, will actually grow us in enjoying him, worshipping him, having a heart like him. And we need this, friends. This is the deliverance we need. Do you think the king of Sodom's heart was a rejoicing heart. I don't know anyone who lives their life on demand mode who is happy. That's the problem with demand mode. You're never happy. Demand mode means I'm constantly never happy. But if our heart was on gratefulness to our deliverer mode and they can only move to that switch by the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin it would change us inside out. It would change the way we relate to God, of course. And it would change the way we relate to one another, naturally, supernaturally. When Melchizedek goes to Abram, he refreshes Abram. Abram's come back from the battlefield. And he gets refreshed with bread and wine, yes. But knows what else Abram gets refreshed with? singing. Singing, singing songs. We need this refreshing too, friends. It's called church. It's really encouraging. See, when we get to come on the Lord's Day every week, we get to come and rejoice with singing. We get to lift our voices to the one who has delivered us from sin and death and worship him. And as we do that, and you may not notice this, But it happens. If you keep doing that week in, week out, it actually changes you. It changes your heart and your attitudes to actually realise who is the one who is worthy of your worship, who you can find ultimate satisfaction in. That you could even say to the world that demands or has expectations, I don't even need to worry about giving you a sandal strap because I've got the one who's given me everything and his name is God Most High. Singing is something that is characteristic of God's people here on earth and in heaven. And by the way, it's not just listening to the music, but singing the words, the words that carry the weight of meaning about our God. Of course, Melchizedek most of all shows us this. He was a priest. He was a king, and we know what kings do. You remember what a priest does? He's a priest. What does their work involve? We often think of priests in our day. Their work would involve lots of writing and speaking, perhaps. But a priest would be known by their blood-stained robes. A priest was the person who would make sacrifices for people. Here is his priest who points to the sacrifice to come. And though Abram, of all peoples of the earth, will be blessed through God's blessing God's promise, Melchizedek points to this. That blessing is going to come through a sacrifice. It's going to come through another priest king. It's going to come through the one who is king, priest and prophet, the one who is savior. You see, the same Melchizedek that comes out of Jerusalem is the one that points to the one who will also one day come out of Jerusalem, out onto a hill, Golgotha. And that priest won't go to a valley, he'll go to a hill to be displayed for the world to see. And he doesn't come with bread and wine, although he does the night before. He comes with his own blood shed, his body broken. He is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, the priest who himself is the lamb who is slain. And he wins the wars of all wars. Church, we live in a world that is unpredictable and unstable. We often feel insecure and unsure. And nothing has changed. This episode shows us nothing has changed in 4,000 years. Nothing has changed about humanity in 4,000 years. We're still the same. And we often look around at the things that we're all going, no, we're different, we're different now. We've got iPhone 14. Like that at least is better than iPhone 1. Surely that's improved our lives. Things are the same. We still live in a world that is demanding because our world doesn't understand God's providence, God's deliverance, God's sovereignty, God's goodness, God's graciousness. And the problem is we are so tempted, even as we look at King of Sodom, to think, well, we could be like that. We can easily look around at the world and think, if just that happened for me, If just I had that thing, then I would be happy. Then I would have my life sorted out. And we we actually look for things to become replacement Jesuses. Replace Christ things. Replace God things. We look for God replacements in our life. But we now can stop looking for and living for replacement Jesus because all we need is Christ. We truly do. Abram could believe that. Melchizedek could believe that, even in a world that no one else did. We live in a world that is demanding everything from you. But look to God who gives you everything by his grace, including himself. You see, Jesus is God most high, who gives more times than we can count. That's why church, by the way, is a thankful people. Church is not meant to be, by design, a complaining people, a bitter people, a frustrated people, an impatient people, an ungrateful people. No, we are a thankful people because we know what Melchizedek knows, what Abram knows, that God Most High has come very low and has given us everything forever. Would you worship him? Let's pray and then lift our voices in song and sing the words we believe. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're asking now that what we've heard from your word would work in our hearts. For the preaching of your word, the proclamation of the declaration of what Jesus has done, how he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament word, how he is the one who has saved us from our sin, who delivers us from the battle of death. Father, our struggle is is we're tempted to not believe that. We think we need other things primarily, but help us to see that we need Christ and he is all we have. Help us to see that, to sing that now and to believe it. For this would change our lives and we pray it so in Jesus' name. Amen.